0: Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your
1: word now, we pray for your guidance, we pray for understanding, we pray for greater insight into the King. Of kings, the one who sovereignly rules and reigns at your right hand, your son, our Lord, and empower me, enable me, Holy Spirit, to declare this truth in Christ's name, Amen. I want you to listen to Hebrews chapter two, verse eight. Now, in putting everything in subjection to Him, Jesus the Christ. Son of God. He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Everything is in subjection to him. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him at present. Everything is in subjection. We do not at this present time see everything. We get this? We got this? It's very important that we understand Jesus, the king, came and established his kingdom. He established his kingdom when he came the first time. He will consummate that kingdom the second time in a new heaven and a new earth. But when Jesus came, his kingdom broke into both the physical And the spiritual realm. His kingdom broke into the physical and the spiritual. Now, the story of humanity could be written under three headings. Formed, deformed, and reformed. Again, the story of humanity could be written under three headings. Formed, deformed, reformed. When God originally formed the world, everything we read in Scripture, all of creation was very good. And because of Adam's original sin, all that was formed good became deformed. God, in His grace promised to reform everything that's been deformed by the sending of his Son, the Christ, God incarnate. And he sent him into this sin-ridden world. Now, when Adam, the representative head of humanity, sinned, all of humanity fell in him, the first Adam, the original Adam, And as a result, every human being thereafter bears the marks of the curse, both spiritually and physically. God's gospel that Jesus came preaching, we see it in verse 14, that he, the last Adam, the Savior of the world, came to rescue us from the effects of the curse. He came to rescue us from that deformation. And he did so by demonstrating his power over the physical, and over the spiritual realms. Mark, our author, is recording history of the one who provides that reformation, Jesus. He is the one who supplies the redemption. And he opens his account, Mark does, with the words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. Now, that supreme declaration, verse 1, must be supported with evidence. Amen? It must be supported. And Mark begins immediately to provide us with remarkable testimony to the fact of the identification of Jesus, who is the Messiah, Son ...of the living God. This is certifiable. We see verifiable testimony. I mean, what have we seen thus far? We have heard the testimony of the prophet John the Baptist... ...who came to prepare the way for the promised one, for the Lord. We've witnessed that testimony. We've heard the testimony of the Father who spoke from heaven at his baptism. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We saw the testimony of the Holy Spirit who at the same time descended upon him like a dove and then drove him into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights by Satan. We've heard the testimony of Jesus, the Christ, Son of God himself, um, regarding his power to rescue men when he said to Peter, James, John, and Andrew, come follow me and I will make you become... Fishers of men. And then, last Lord's Day, we heard the testimony of a demon. A a demon who spoke through the vocal cords of a man he possessed. Who declared, I know who you are. Terrified. Terrified. You're the son of the most high God. Testimony after testimony. Now, this section that we're in, verses 21 to 38, we we, we started last week, covers, it's just one snapshot of one 24-hour day in the life of our Lord. And it testifies to the fact of his kingdom breaking in to the invisible and the visible realm. It's a testimony to that fact. That's the next testimony we see. One 24-hour period in the life of our Lord during his earthly ministry, and we saw him enter in last Lord's Day to the local synagogue in Capernaum, where he taught with authority. Not like the scribes. The people we read were astonished, which means literally they were struck out of themselves. That is, they were struck out of their senses by his authority. That is amazement. That is wonder at his teaching. Authority is the word exousia. And it means out of the original stuff. Authority having to do with authorship. So, in the midst of that congregation, there was a man sitting there with no apparent difference of him or in him than anybody else, outwardly, anyway until Jesus enters the room and begins teaching. And it's revealed that that man is demon-possessed. And the unclean spirit within the man, as Jesus is preaching the truth, he's expositing Scripture, he reads the Scripture, he explains the Scripture. The demon within him is stirred up, he's provoked, he's agitated and terrified. Because he knows Jesus is the one who recognizes all The demonic realm is invisible to us. It's not invisible to Jesus, and they know it. He blows their cover. He's terrified because he knows that Jesus is the one that will destroy them. Have you come to destroy us? He speaks on behalf of the demonic realm, the invisible demonic realm. So we, we see that the demons rightly recognized the mission and authority of Jesus, the Christ, Son of God, before humanity did. They see it first. And this evil spirit, who, who hated Jesus, they hate the Lord, testified to the fact, through this man, that he is indeed the Son of God. We've witnessed that. So, Jesus gives clear evidence of who he is in the synagogue On that day, casting out that demon, identifying the demon, and the demon rightly identified him, and Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out. And he had to obey. He cast him out. Verse 26 says, He threw the man into a convulsion, and then the unclean spirit screamed with a loud voice and came out. The people we read were amazed. What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey. There's no props there. There's no ritual there. There's no hocus-pocus there. Like the nonsense on TV, Jesus speaks. They must obey. He's in control of the invisible realm because he's king. And here this man who's been held captive, Set free. Set free. That was not another sleepy morning in the local synagogue in Capernaum that that week. Amen? Nobody's nodding there and nodding off in there. So how then does the kingdom of God come into the world? With power that overrules the ruler of the age. He's the powerful one. He has all authority. He has authority that is beyond human authority. He has authority that is beyond the physical realm. He has authority and he must have authority if he is the Christ, son of the living God. He must have power also over the invisible, unseen realm. And he does. He's the king who brought his kingdom. God's Christ, God's son, must have power over all forces of evil that exist in the universe or there's no way he could have possibly redeemed you. Or me. Mark is laying it out. He has power that overrules all power. And so Mark tells us, Jesus, he has that power. And we just witnessed one proof of it. As regards his deity. One proof of his deity. We saw last Lord's day. Now, the breaking in of God's kingdom first appears, not in the human realm, but in the cosmic realm. We witnessed it there. And that was in order to bind the strong man. Chapter 3, verse 27. Jesus comes and he binds the strong man and he plunders his house. How do you plunder someone's house unless you bind the strong man? Satan's the strong man. Bound by the power of Christ. One proof of his deity. So, we're going to move now from the public realm of his power, kingdom power, breaking in to a private scene. And here we see His kingdom extended by acts of gracious service. Gracious service through the miracle of healing. And it it, it provides for us, beloved, a glimpse. Okay? This provides for us a glimpse of, of, of of that reality and what that reality will be in a full and final sense. And that is when he comes again, right? And he consummates his kingdom He removes every tear. There will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more grieving. There will be no more groaning. How many of you groaned when you got out of bed this morning? (laughs) No more. This foreshadows that. Power. So notice verse 29. After the incident in the synagogue, immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon Andrew with James and John. Now, the synagogue service would have ended around noon. You know, it's kind of like our deal, right? We gather on the Lord's Day, Sunday. ends around noon or so. And then they proceed. That, that is James, John, Andrew, Peter, known as Simon here, and Jesus. And, and they enter into Simon's house. Okay? His brother, Andrew, we read in John 1, verse 44, were originally from Bethsaida which is just a short short distance from Capernaum. And they obviously relocated here for the sake of business. Um, After gathering here in their local synagogue on this uh, Sabbath day, they naturally, understandably, so invited Jesus to come back home. So in verse 30, we read, Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately, there's his favorite word again, they told him about here. So it's his mother-in-law. It's interesting. We don't, we don't read anything about Mrs. Peter here, but she's there. This is her mother-in-law. We know, that Peter, we know that Peter was married. We read in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5, that Simon Peter and his wife who traveled with him on missionary trips shows that the church supported that. So Peter was married, 1 Corinthians tells us, his wife traveled with him. This is his mother-in-law. She, the mother-in-law, is probably a widow living with Peter and Andrew who are two successful businessmen in Capernaum. They enter into this house and the mother-in-law lays ill with a fever. They had no thermometers and none of those little gadgets that you stick under the armpit or in the ear and all this fancy stuff. They had none of that, but she's noticeably feverish. She's very ill. She's very hot. The word for fever here comes from a word that we get the word pyro from. She's burning up. Um, Luke, who was a doctor, in his account, refers to this as a mega fever. I don't know, 104? 105? She's burning up. So, They leave the synagogue, and they enter into Peter's home. If you've ever visited over in Israel, you've been to Capernaum, they'll take you to what was Peter's home. And they're almost 100% sure it was Peter's home. They've been there, been to Capernaum, saw the old synagogue there. We see Peter's home there. And entering that home, um, Jesus would have entered into what was a a common type of room um, in uh, an open area courtyard type of place. Now, this would have been an upper-middle-class part of the neighborhood as, again, Simon and his brother were successful in in the fishing trade. So they would have entered into a kind of um, complex, an open courtyard. And in the courtyard, you would have a hearth, fireplace or places. You would have a millstone for grain, hand presses there. And then you would have stairways going up to the roofs, which served as a patio, to the flat ...covered um, rooms, and all of the windows to the rooms, the private rooms, would open up towards this courtyard. Okay, So Jesus would have entered in through the gate. There would be typically one gate that leads into a courtyard, and then from the courtyard, they lead him back to a back room where this woman is lying ill. Peter's mother-in-law. So here's a family with a very sick loved one inside, unable to get out of bed. Verse 31... And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. The fever left her, and she began to serve them. So from the courtyard to the bedroom, maybe 30 seconds. Takes her by the hand, maybe another five seconds. Lifts her up out of bed, perhaps another five seconds. Fever departs, zero seconds. Gone. He pulls her up. The moment Jesus willed it, it was gone because he's the king who has power and authority over the invisible and the visible, over the spiritual and the physical. It's done. This is a demonstration of his sovereign absolute control here now over the physical. He commands and in an instant there's compliance. Luke says that he rebuked the fever. He rebuked it. She's lifted up, and immediately, immediately, she serves them. Now, we're going to see in chapter 1, Jesus heal a leper, where immediately his leprosy is gone. Chapter 2, a paralytic immediately gets up and walks. In chapter 3, a man with a withered hand uh, stretch it out. Immediately, it's restored. And chapter 4, Jesus, in the midst of a storm, speaks. And immediately, the sea is calm and still as glass. Amazing. Showing us again that Jesus' authority stretches to every corner of every realm. This is what Mark wants us to see. Remember what he's after. He's here to prove that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God. Mark wants us to see he's the Lord of the universe. Mark wants us to see that he is the king. We're going to see what his main purpose was. And let me tell you this, it wasn't to heal physically. We're going to talk about that. Notice she gets up and she begins to serve. In other words, she makes them lunch. That's what she does. Okay, now this is a very significant observation. Notice, if you've ever had a high fever for any stretch of time, day, two days, you are exhausted. Once the fever's gone, you're beat down. You're zapped of strength. Here, Simon's mother-in-law shows no signs, not a trace of weakness whatsoever. She just pops up and serves. So this is a very important portrait of what the kingdom meant and what the kingdom means that the Lord is is restoring that which is deformed. And this provides pictures for us of what will ultimately be. And again, there will be no more tears, no sorrow, no suffering, no mourning, no pain, no disappointment. Every tear will be wiped away. This is what we see is pictured for us here. So Jesus heals her, lifts her up. And then we see this beautiful expression she waits on them. This is domestic service. This is her instinct. This is her desire. She waits on the Lord. She serves her household. A couple of big old fishermen, probably some kids. Peter's wife is there, who knows how many. So she began to serve. Now, this kind of service seems menial. It may seem menial to some today, but let me tell you this. This is a core characteristic of true discipleship. Right here. This is the very kind of service Jesus taught, albeit with some difficulty, to his disciples over and over again. They didn't get the servanthood part of following Christ. They, they, they wanted to sit on his right hand and on his left, but they didn't understand this domestic form of, of service, which to many is very menial. This is very honorable service, even though so many in the 21st century see it as trivial and insignificant. Can I get a witness on that one? To the point that it, that it belittles and even vilifies, to some extent, domestic ministry. And it's even infected the church. And much of it is, a due, is due to uh, the feminist movement in our day. And when it starts to infect the church, that's a bad thing. You know, it's sometimes suggested to moms, to wives, to, to servants in the home. You know, don't you want to put your degree to use? Really? You know, you got married in college. Don't you want to pursue finishing your degree? Um, don't you want to pursue a degree since you never have had one? You know, so you can get out there and experience your value. Right? Moms, let me say this. You who are at home, serving your children, ministering at home, ministering and serving like this. Never be tempted to buy into the rhetoric that in order to feel value and worth in life, that you have to move from in there to out there. You get it? Don't buy into that. You know, I read of, uh, you know, Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, who is with the Lord now, um, had a, a sign in her kitchen that read divine service performed here daily. Don't forget that. Don't let anyone take you on a guilt trip. Amen? Amen. Jesus raised her up and she served them. And then after sundown, okay, the Sabbath has come to an end. So sundown, to sundown, couldn't move or go about or carry the sick and so on. So that evening, verse 32, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. Now, after the synagogue incident, no doubt, verse 28, news spread... At once. He's the talk of the town. Notice the whole city. It doesn't mean every single individual, okay, without exception. Okay, it's hyperbole. Amen. It's kind of like John 12, verse 19, where we read the Pharisees said to one another about Jesus, Look, the whole world has gone after him. Okay, figurative speech. In other words, They're talking about him and what he's done, and there's a lot of people there. They're pressing it. So throughout the homes of that city that day, people were talking. Their lives are back to normal. This person has had this ailment. This loved one has had this ailment. They're rejoicing over over the freedom that they have now. It's quite an amazing thing. He heals them. Various diseases, he's casting out demons. And notice there's a distinction. This is very important. Notice there's a distinction between physical illness and demonic possession. Did you get that? There's a difference between physical illness and demon oppression. Mark does not confuse. He does not mistake or mix the two at all. There's no confusion here. There is those who were sick, he healed. Those who were demonically possessed, he cast out. So don't fall into this nonsense, well, you're sick, you must have some kind of demonic oppression. Right? He heals, and he drives out demons. And, as regards these demons, he would not allow them to speak. Verse 34, he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. They knew him. But, you see, their understanding of Jesus' true identity it was undeniable. But Jesus did not need nor want testimony from them. So he said, zip it. Because their belief is begrudging belief. Their belief, it's a true belief, but it's a hate-filled belief. It's rebellious belief. So Jesus neither wanted nor needed any confession from the demon. So he tells them to be quiet. This is kind of like Acts 16. You know, Paul and Silas are going through the town, remember? And there's a demon-possessed girl, a, a fortune teller. That tells you something about fortune tellers. Demon-possessed girl who's a fortune teller, following them around and saying, these are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Is that true? Yeah. And this she kept doing for many days... And we read, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, said, In the name of Jesus Christ, be gone. And because she brought a lot of income to that town through her shenanigans, they dragged Paul and Silas, and they beat them, and they throw them into jail. Even so, they did not need or want testimony from any demon that was possessing an individual. So with all these people coming to him now, it's, it's, it, it was likely, likely late into the evening, all walks of life, so they probably went to bed very late, imagine this, or maybe early in the morning, they finally go to bed, and yet before sunrise, Jesus disappears, okay? Jesus disappears, In rising, verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone's looking for you. Praise. This is one of three occasions that, that Mark records for us. We see one here in chapter 1, another time chapter 6, and again in verse uh, chapter 14. And it shows us how dependent the Son was upon the Father. Led by the Spirit, dependent upon the Father, seeking the Father's will. So he quietly goes out to a solitary place, probably quiet so as not to be noticed. He just slips out, and he goes and he prays about what we do not know. Probably about what just happened. That was a big day. Amen? Fair to say? Big day. Public ministry begins in Galilee, and all that happened. So we're moving into that 20, the end of that 24-hour period where he's up late. We saw the healing that afternoon. He's up late. He slips out. He goes to pray. And he's probably praying to the Father about the masses' misunderstanding of his mission. Misunderstanding of his mission. Father, what would you have me do? So he's out praying. So there's a search. Search party for Jesus. Where is he? And uh, they searched for him. The the verb conveys uh, an urgent manhunt. This isn't just a glance. You know, I wonder where he is. it's it's, It's a mad, frantic search. They finally find him. Simon says, what are you doing out here? People have been searching for you since the crack of dawn. Why are you here? This is Peter, okay? What are you doing here when the crowds... Here it is, friends. When the crowds are over there. Can you see where this is going? What are you doing here? So they urged him to return to the scene of triumph that produced a tremendous following. But notice his popularity is due to miracles and not his message. To his signs, not his substance. Right? Are people any different today? No. No. Whenever interest is high, and and numbers are snowballing, a lot of ministries would would, would see this or see that as cause to expand their platform. This is where you erect the revival tent. Right? Right? You erect the revival tent. You hold special services. For, sh- for sure a concert. You have to have a concert. And then you bring in circus acts. You know, guys tearing phone books in half or bending steel. And then you get, a, you get a celebrity to give a testimony and play a couple emotional songs and then say, you know, anyone who doesn't want to go to hell, repeat after me. Who doesn't want to go to hell? Nobody. So they'll repeat some prayer. There's no true preaching that goes on there. It's very minimal. It's very minimal. And the gospel is so poorly preached in some places today, as John MacArthur says, the non elect, they don't know enough to reject it. Yeah. So they, like, okay, I'll say the prayer. And then, after all the excitement, they, these leaders will gather a committee. They'll gain information about how to build off the success and cash in on the popularity. And not unlike Capernaum. Most of the people remain what? Unconverted. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 11 about Capernaum. You think you're going to ascend to heaven? You'll descend to Hades. For I'll tell you this, if the signs that were performed here in front of you were, would, would, would have been revealed in Sodom, it would still exist. You're doomed. Signs don't save. Miracles don't save. The regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, when the gospel's preached properly, saves sinners. All of Jesus' healings and supernatural works were po- to point to that reality that he is the promised one, he is the word, he is salvation. Now, let me talk about healing. Okay? I want to talk about healing ministries, quote end quote, of our day. Many credulous people, many gullible people, many uninformed people, many poor people are deceived into false hope of many of these phony TV healers who aren't healers. They watch them line up people with supposed ailments, and it's always invisible ailments. Back pain, migraine, sore ankle. You never see anyone in line with a missing limb. There's no one standing there who was born without eyeballs. Okay? You don't see true quadriplegics lined up. Now, these healers, they make a lot of elaborate claims, they have nothing to back it up with. Or they'll say, you know, the healing, they're in recovery. Jesus spoke and immediately, full restoration. Are you with me? Be careful. Although you never see these kind of miracles today, many people claim that the healing outburst that occurred during Jesus' ministry and the apostles' ministry, and the reason the apostles had those signs, they're called signs of an apostle, it was to validate their apostolic authority. That's why these kind of sign gifts do not exist. Now, many people teach that those kind of outbursts of miracles are the norm and the will of God among his people today. But let's think about it logically. Throughout all of redemptive history, whenever, when has there ever been men with this kind of gift? Three times. During the ministries of Moses and Joshua... Elijah and Elisha and Jesus and his apostles. That's it. Jesus had the power of healing and casting out demons because he's Christ, son of God. God in a human body. He delegated that power to 70 of those men who went out in his name proclaiming the gospel and his apostles who went out preaching his gospel amidst what? Many false apostles who were preaching another gospel. So to validate their claims of authority, they would be supported by miraculous signs and wonders. Again, signs of an apostle. Signs of an apostle. Do we have any apostles today? No. They're all with the Lord. They were preaching his gospel among many false gospels, many false apostles. So these signs validated the true message. Today, we don't need that kind of validation. Why? Because we test all preaching in light of the Word of God. The canon's closed. You know, these charlatans today who claim to have the gift of healing, you never see them lined up outside a Rady's Hospital. You never see them going room to room raising children up out of their bed. You don't see it. You don't see true quadriplegics rising up out of their wheelchairs. You don't see it. Why? Because they can't heal. No one can heal like this. Does God heal? Of course. Can he heal anybody of any ailment? Yes. Do men today have these miraculous sign gifts? No. What they do is they take John 14, 12... Way out of context. So in case you're wondering, let's, let's look at it. John 14, verse 12. Upper room, Jesus with his disciples on the night before his death, chapters 13 through 18 are one night of John. And on that night, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the Father. People take that, and they say that, well, that means that those who believe in Christ will do greater miracles than he did. Guess what? Never. It would totally take away from all the Old Testament promises of what the Messiah would be and what he would do. It would strip him of that. Besides that, the word that John uses all throughout his gospel for miracles is the word sign, as in significant. Significant. Signs have to do with wonders. The work he's talking about is ministerial work. And the work that you, they will do and we will do will be greater in extension. Preaching the gospel, showing compassion, moving about to the four corners of the earth. And besides that, those who were in attendance this night, the apostles, together never did greater sign miracles than Jesus did. They preached in more places than he did, where they didn't do greater sign miracles than he did. Amen? You know, we're going to see in chapter 4, Jesus stands up on a boat and calms a storm. Boom! Calm as glass. Paul, the greatest apostle, what happened to him? He was in three storms and probably more. He was shipwrecked three times. Amen? The men spoke about this Thursday night. Shipwrecked. He didn't call them a storm. They didn't do greater sign miracles than Jesus. They did greater ministerial work by the power of the resident presence of the Holy Spirit. That work. Does God heal? Don't, Don't hear me wrong. God heals. Do men have these sign miracles today? No. They went out with the apostles. And if they do, as I've said before, get in your car and get on down to Rady's Children's Hospital and go room to room to room and do what Jesus did. God does not promise his own redeemed people Physical healing. In this world, you will suffer, but rejoice. I've overcome the world. You're going to be healed. Every Christian person's bedside I've been at and prayed for God to heal if it be His will, guess what? 100% of the time, they were healed. And they all died. They're healed. They're healed. We know people that God has healed. Because God willed to heal. A person, I know a person with stage 4 cancer. God healed. I, nobody healed him. No one said anything or waved their hand. God did it because he willed to do it. These guys on TV don't have this gift. It's a show. Don't be fooled. Drawing a crowd is easy. Entertaining the masses is a snap. Man's need is not to be healed physically. Man's need is to be transformed on the inside. Transformed on the inside. Okay, when has, okay, answer this. When has the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel, when has that ever been a crowd pleaser? It wasn't then and it's not now. Do some supposed works and whip everybody up into a frenzy. That draws a crowd. It does nothing but whip people up. Divine truth is to be declared from pulpits. The truth of God. So Jesus was not then, nor is he now, concerned with or interested in the fleeting adoration of crowds. That's why his ministers must preach, because he knows the hearts of the majority. What do we see in chapter 2 of John? The crowds are coming after him because of his sign miracles. But Jesus what? What? He, did not, he, he needed no one, to wear, no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. They saw the signs that he was doing. Many believed, okay? We're not talking about true regenerate belief here. They believed that he does what he does, so they followed. And Jesus did not give himself to them. He did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He's never been moved by crowds. He wasn't in Capernaum, nor was he in other parts of the Galilee. Amen? So, let's look at Jesus' response with all that being said. Having all of that in our minds, the 24-hour day has ended. He began in the synagogue. That afternoon, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. That evening, they're bringing all kinds of sick and demon-possessed to them. He heals them all. He casts out all the demons. He goes away. He prays. Peter finds him, and he says, verse 38, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also for that. Circle that. Circle that. That is why I came out. Came out of what? First, out of heaven. And secondly, out of Nazareth and into Capernaum. For that, I've come to preach. Preach what? Verse 14 the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom's at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So in that desolate place, that that solitary place where Jesus is praying, he tells his disciples, look, I did not come simply to impress people with spectacular displays of power. Yes, I want to heal. Yes, I want to show compassion. Yes, I want to prove that I have the authority as the Son of God. I want to do it, and I'm going to do it. I want to show compassion to the hurting, to the ailing, to to the demon-possessed, but above all, Above all, I have come to announce salvation, to rescue sinners from the enmity and the wrath of God. That's why he came. Primarily to proclaim the good news, and that good news and him as the good news in a human body was validated by the sign miracles. And what are signs for, beloved? signs always point to something greater than themselves. As I've said this before, my little joke, if you're going to go to L.A. today and you see the sign on the 805 that says Los Angeles, you'll look like a fool if you have a picnic under that sign. And you say, what are you doing? Well, I'm having a picnic in Los Angeles. That's the sign that points to Los Angeles. Did a wedding yesterday. Their rings signify, they're a sign. It's significant of the vows they made that day. It's a sign. The miracles were a sign that pointed to Jesus as the Christ, Son of God. You don't need that validation today. The gospel's to be preached. He comes announcing, he comes preaching. Jesus came primarily to proclaim this news. He came to reform what's deformed. And the greatest thing that's deformed is the heart of men came to reform it he wants people to know that and he wants people to turn to him and repent to change your thinking about him and, and run to him for deliverance that's what he wants he'll heal 10 lepers one comes back and thanks him where are the other nine they're into the sign not the substance Jesus wants people here to stop trying to be good enough in their own power to find favor in the sight of God. I'm the only way, he says, for God to show you favor. Come, trust, follow me, he says. How? Not merely through these occurrences of defeating and destroying demons and disease. There's a much greater work that he's come to perform. And all of this simply leads to that. All of this points to that this 24-hour day in the life of Jesus is but a tiny indication of another day. A greater day. A much greater day. This day of conquering demons and, and conquering disease in Capernaum is a preview of a decisive moment of defeat. And it would happen on another day. And that's the day he hung on a cross. That's the day he hung on a cross to be punished for our sin. That was the day he hung on a cross giving his life for ours. That day. Doing all that was necessary to rescue us, to reform the deformed, to redeem the wretched. That day. See, do we get as excited about that day as we do about miracles in a day? Most people don't. They'll get whooped up. Emotional hype about things that appear to be happening. Oh, look at that guy. He was on crutches and he just threw him in a pile. Yeah, well, they hired him to do it too. There's a story of a guy that used to go to church here. His mother had cancer. Took him up to Benny Hinn. That's charlatan. Pulling into the parking lot up in Anaheim. And he's going to park and there's a woman there who's kind of in the way in the parking lot. And there's one of those big orange construction barrier things. They keep sandbags in them. She gets out there, lifts it up, and moves it to pull her car in there. So later on that night, this friend of ours, his mother has cancer. She's really hopeful that she's going to be healed. And they see a line of people up there getting healed. Guess who one of them is? The woman moving the barricade. Maybe she put her back out moving, to, I don't know. <laughs> and she was devastated. Had all this hope and anticipation and then witnessed that. It's a hoax. Don't buy into that. You know, later in the New Testament, what do we learn, okay? Later, now once the gospel is going out, okay, this stuff disappears, You know, what do we read about Paul? We read about Paul that he's sick. We read about Paul that he's suffering. Paul leaves Trophimus sick in Miletus. Why didn't he heal him if he's so beneficial to the ministry? Timothy's sick. Why didn't he heal him? He's take a little wine for your stomach ailment. Epaphroditus is ill. The final pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. There's no mention of any healing ministry. There's no promise of healing physically in the future. It's not there it fades out. Sign miracles faded out. Their job was to proclaim the gospel, not to do signs, miracles, and wonders. So this all previews the day that Christ took upon himself the wrath of God in our place, dying in our place, defeating death, raising from the dead on another day, the third day. That's what all this was for. Now, let me tell you this. There is a colossal, eternal difference between you turning to Christ for that and not. It's the difference between heaven and hell. It's the difference between eternal life and eternal suffering. Yes, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Christ, the King, Son of God. He came as king with all authority to accomplish this good news. That's what it's for. Paying our debt by way of his death. Conquering sin and death by way of the resurrection. And that's what the table represents. Okay? This is what we have in mind as we come to the table. Now, the gospel declared just now, that's the gospel, is made visible there. And it's for believers. Those whose faith and trust is in Jesus Christ. You've repented. That means you've changed your wacky way of thinking about who God is and what he does and how he does what he does. And you've turned to the, to the living God through Jesus Christ by faith. Faith alone? Yeah. Faith alone. If you're not in Christ, you must repent and believe. Believe.